Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Just Another History Podcast. I'm Evan Norville. And I'm Dylan Colucci. And we are your hosts. Uh, you can find Dylan on Instagram at Dylan Colucci. That's all one word spelled Dylan with a Y, C-O-L-U-C-C-I. And you can find me on, on Instagram at Evan underscore Norville. That's Evan underscore N-O-R-V-E-L-L. And you can find the Just Another History Podcast on Instagram at Just Another History Podcast with underscores between each word. In today's episode, we will be continuing with part three of our American Civil War series. Uh, We will be discussing the first major engagement of the Civil War, uh, building the Army of the Potomac, uh, General Grant's invasion of Tennessee, and a few battles that coincide in the Western theater. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. So, uh, Dylan, uh, I mentioned a term there. Western theater um, in our intro. And I think we should probably dissect what these different theaters, what I mean. I don't mean a theater that you go out and see a play. (laughs) So let's talk about that. So if I'm explaining, you know, if me and you were talking World War II, the two, you know, the biggest theaters war, you got the Pacific theater and the European theater. Right. And so that basically means you've got the front whatever you know the war you're fighting in the pacific with against the japanese and you've got the war that you're fighting in europe against the nazis right yeah and so that's the same thing here obviously a long time before that (laughs) same concept right and so just think of it this way from um the east coast uh to maybe georgia ish is considered the eastern theater of the american civil war okay Kind of like the, uh, like East Coast, like maybe Appalachia, Appalachia yeah, Mountains, kind of somewhere sort of, in there. Right, because Tennessee, part of Tennessee would be considered, that little section would still yeah, be considered little... part of the Eastern Theater. Okay, so you go from that point to the Mississippi River, that's considered the Western Theater. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then anything west of that is called the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Okay, and so that's anything that happens in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas. Which you don't really hear about a lot. Yeah, not a lot of stuff. We're not really going to get into that very much. Yeah, uh, We're going to touch on them. But uh, anyway, so that, that's what I mean by theater. So I just wanted to clear the air there for, for you listeners so we could kind of all be on the same playing field. Not saying that you didn't already know that. Yeah. Just saying that we needed sure. to touch it. So, uh, Dylan, I said we were going to cover the first major engagement of the Civil War. We'd already talked about one engagement, which was... Uh, the bombardment of Fort Sumner, mm-hmm. which is kind of one-sided. Of course, you know, the Confederates absolutely shelled that place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody died. <clears throat> uh, somebody died afterwards, but still, not during the battle. And so we're going to actually get to our first actual engagement. So let's talk about this. Uh, this battle actually had two separate names. If you were in the North uh, or the South, it had different names. So if you're in the North, you'd call this uh, the first battle of Bull Run. Okay. Uh, I, well, at this time, you call it the Battle of Bull Run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, if you Number were two. right, if you're in the South, you call this the Battle of Manassas. So we should probably break that down too, Dylan. A lot of battles had multiple names. A lot, I feel like war. a lot of things during the war in general had yeah different names between, like the war itself had different names. Exactly. Between, you know where you were geographically. Right. The war of Northern aggression, or yeah. you know the Civil War, where, <laughs> you know all these different names. And guys, this gets really confusing as we move through. Because there's different names of armies and different names of yeah. battles, and so let's let's take a second and breathe and kind of kind of figure this out. Okay, actually, both battles we're going to talk about today sometimes go by two different two names, different names. So, yeah. Exactly, M- many battles during the Civil War are like that. Really, so let's break this down. So, the North usually named their battles off of features. Okay, <clears throat> think of creeks. Think of uh, farms, maybe like a uh, of a of a person locally that's known, mm-hmm. you know, th- uh, think of uh, hills, mountains, you know, that are named stuff like that. Okay, the Confederates tended to name battles off of the closest city where the battle took place. Okay, so the battle uh, of First Bull Run or First Manassas took place near Manassas, Virginia. Okay, not in the city, not like in the streets, <laughs> yeah. you know, but that was the next closest city. Mountain so that's sticks. why, right? So I just wanted to break that down. Okay. So let's get into this. Okay. This was our first major engagement of the American civil war. It was fought on July the 21st of 1861. Okay. So Dylan, let's, let's uh, do that math here. 
uh, our first kind of uh, engagement, whatever you want to call it, was minor engagement. Was it Fort Sumter? Yeah, Sumter. In April. Uh, and so four months later, right? I'm sorry, three months later, yeah. uh, we get to this point. And so this is for many reasons. You know, they were kind of trying to prepare. Both sides were trying to kind of prepare, see what they were going to do. So that's that's the main reason. Okay. But anyway, this uh, location is about 30 miles southwest of the federal capital at Washington, D.C. Okay. So very close. Yeah, very, very close to home. Right. And so basically, uh, there's a general. His name was, uh, he was a brigadier general, Irving McDowell. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he was under a lot of political pressure from Washington. They were like, there are rebels to the southwest, and they're like really close. You need to do something. <laughs> we about need this. them gone, right? And you have to understand, uh, Virginia and and Washington D.C. were like, but it just they were just across the Potomac River from each other, yeah. right? Two very separate worlds, right? Exactly. And so that's not very far. Like in in modern, that's like, I mean, that was close. Like you were like, oh my gosh, the enemy's like right there, and they were kind of upset about that. They were like, oh, we need to do something about this. Okay, so Lincoln kind of pressured. Uh, General McDowell to, you know, you need to get these troops and you need to do what? Well, you need to capture Ripshin. Rip I can't even say it. <laughs> Richmond, excuse me. So that you're going to see that a common thread throughout this. You're going to see Lincoln telling generals, go capture Richmond. Go capture Ripshin. Yeah. I can't even say it real fast. So anyway. Well, I mean, I feel like it, I'd have trouble sleeping at night if I was Lincoln. Wouldn't you, though? And being a stone to throw away from. Oh, my gosh. Quote, unquote, the enemy. I know. know. So. So let's break this down, okay? McDowell didn't really want to go yet, okay? Because he was leading green troops. When I say a green troop, I mean like an inexperienced troop. These Most which of these guys had never seen war. Which is also a theme of this the entire, entire war. Yeah. yeah, early war at least. Eventually everybody kind of got By the time it was over, scars. everyone knew what they were doing. Right. <laughs> but like, you have to understand, when, when Lincoln called for these volunteers, and when volunteers you know, were, volunteer, were volunteering in the South as well, you have to understand these guys weren't uh, military men. They were like career military. A lot of them were, but the major vast majority of them were shopkeepers. You know, they were doctors, lawyers. You know, you had all these different professions that came together, right? So these are green troops, okay? So he took a force of 35,000 men, pretty large force, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, marched southwest to meet an equally inexperienced group of Confederates <laughs> under command of our old friend, Pierre Gustave Totant Beauregard, the the hero of Fort Sumner, as yeah. he was called. Okay, very well known. Uh, Beauregard had about twenty two thousand men camped near Manassas Junction, and so there was there was a junction, a railroad crossing, if you will, there at Manassas, and it was a straight shot into Richmond. Uh, the railroad went straight to Richmond. Okay, which is also a theme I feel like of this war. It's like anything railroad. that goes on is probably directly tied to a railroad. Exactly. And or, that was know, close by. I mean, this was the super highway of the day. You okay. know, at one time it was rivers, you know, and at this time it is, you know, railroads, definitely. And in the future, it will be actual highways. <laughs> so anyway, uh, basically the union's plan, they were going to try to outflank uh, the Confederates by surprise. And obviously that means they're going to try to get around them some way. Uh, however, this was very poorly executed, but the Confederates were also, uh, slow and at a disadvantage. I mean, they, they, both these guys are green. Both these armies don't really know what they're doing. Both yeah. sides are kind of equally disadvantaged. Kind of like figuring it out as you go. Right. Hoping, hoping that something goes right. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, it, it would not for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> for either side. So anyway, let's talk about those figures. The North had 35,000 men brought to this battle. Uh, and the South had about 22,000 men. Okay. So Beauregard uh, kind of saw he was at a disadvantage. And he called on some reinforcements. Okay. So uh, we're throwing a lot of names out. No, this is a lot to understand, mm -hmm. uh, but we're just going to try to grasp it as we go. There's another Confederate general. His name was Joseph E. Johnston. He was just uh, not too far away in the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, Beauregard was like, Johnston, get your butt over here. We're going to need some help. Okay. And Johnston had a small force, about 10,000 men. And so they got on the railroad, got in, got in some cars, packed them like sardines in these rail yeah. cars. And, Shipped them over there that same day, right? Dylan, this was the first time in the history of the world that troops were moved by rail. Oh, so that's, yeah, I that's know cool. That. Yeah, this is this is a really cool fact to me. Like, this is the first time ever that troops were sent to a battlefield by that means. Yeah, I guess as you say that, I never really 
heard anything about that mentioned like in general. Right. You know, never really thought mm-hmm. about it, but. And so this was like very, like this is not seen before and you could get in there really quick. Of course, trains didn't travel very fast, like, tw- you know, 20 something miles an hour, which was like flying. <laughs> A lot faster time. than marching. Right. And so they got them there like lickety split. Right. And so Beauregard's force went from uh, 22,000 to 32,000. So still short, you know, uh, 3,000 men, but still. That's a lot better odds. Exactly. And so Joseph E. Johnston's troops arrived from the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, basically there was a creek separating the two armies, which we talked about Bull Run Creek, okay? Mm -hmm. Or just Bull Run, as it was called, okay? Uh, And so basically the Union troops uh, spent most of the day trying to get over the creek. Uh, They did eventually uh, get over the creek and outflank the Confederate left, okay? And we have to think about this, guys. If you're... If you're the Confederates, you're looking at your lines. The left side is the Union right flank, okay? Mm-hmm. And so the Union push on their right, and the left Confederate left flank collapses, okay? So uh, the Union are like, hey, we're we're doing this. We're like, we're beating these guys, right? And they're pushing the Confederates back. The Confederates are, are continually falling back. And, uh, however, one unit held on that Confederate left flank under the command of a Virginian by the name of Thomas Jackson. Okay, he had some uh, VMI cadets, and that's the Virginia Military Institute. He he taught there. Uh, they raised up obviously some mm-hmm. troops, took them to war. So this this is these basically college aged kids yeah. out here fighting. Okay, and that school is still uh, running today. It is. It is. Fun fact. Uh huh. Have a friend that goes there. Do you really? Yeah. Bring him on sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and so so uh, Thomas Jackson holds with his Virginians, and he earns the name. Stonewall Jackson, and it sticks for all of history. And here we are today, calling that. There was a uh, everybody was retreating. He his division was the only one standing, and uh, one of the commanders in the other divisions that was falling back was like, "There stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally upon the Virginians." And so everybody surges forward, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is cool!" And everybody's got like this burst of morale, right? Yeah. And they're going, they're pushing back forward. So this strength and morale, seeing Jackson sitting there, and is very odd about Jackson. So you, you can imagine somebody sitting in their horseback uh, with an arm raised above their head. Okay. For some reason, Jackson thought uh, that it leveled him out uh, while in the fight. So you could, you could see him. There's many writings of people saying they saw him in the middle of a fight with one of his hands raised up yeah. in the air for whatever reason. He's kind of known for that. Right. And he's also a very uh, outrageously religious man. Okay. And so he he was very religious, and that was kind of a part of him as well that people kind of saw. But anyway, it's just kind of odd to think about somebody riding around a horseback with a hand stuck way up in the air. I guess it'd be hard to – I mean, easy to find him. You're right. <laughs> hey, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway – Or easy target. Oh, yeah, definitely. So like I said, this strength and morale and the Confederates surged forward, and this is the first time that the federal troops got a taste of that rebel yell. And for those of you who don't know, the rebel yell was just this thing. Uh, basically, everybody just yelled, hooped, and hollered. <laughs> and uh yeah you know basically and like imagine that but thousands i say of but people. if you get thirty thousand people doing that right and you can actually uh i think we've seen i know i've seen some i think we've watched them yeah. there's some videos you can find on like on youtube and stuff mm-hmm. from back in like the 20s and 30s of like some sure. of the last remaining sure. uh civil war veterans yep, yep. confederate yeah. veterans yeah and they had these get-togethers every year to mm-hmm. celebrate and they would actually do the rebel yell yeah and the, these are the only recorded examples and these yeah. were in the 20s and 30s so these men were old yeah, very old at, at that time. And so, you know, it's, it doesn't sound exactly like it did, I'm sure. But, like, that's a good example. To get, you can just, like, you know, rebel yell, mm-hmm. whatever. So, in the, and, in the uh, recordings, it's usually, like, 10, 20 guys. And so, imagine that. And, and they're multiply. doing it, you know, maybe different slightly or whatever. But right. Like, Everybody had their own unique yell. Like, since so you have 30,000 people screaming, yelling anything. <laughs> it's going to be terrifying. It's, it's enough, you know. Right. And so, that was kind of a psychological thing. I don't think they really thought of it that way. I think they were just, like, excited. And so they started hooping and hollering, right? And that's kind of what it was. But it, to the union, it was kind of like psychological, like, oh, sounds like banshees screaming at me, right? And so the Confederates search for the rebel yell, and the union troops become outflanked. The Confederates manage to kind of surround them a little bit, and they the union troops retreat. The Confederates uh, pursue, and the federal army is routed. They completely break rank and run, turn around. <laughs> Go back they, north. They're like, tail oh, tuck oh. their legs. You're right. <laughs> These guys ran 30 miles back <laughs> to Washington, D.C. You need to understand this. So, Bull Run, obviously, would be written up as a Confederate victory. And this kind of shattered the hopes of the Civil War being a quick two, three-week war. Yeah. 
So on on both sides, okay, this kind of shattered that on, on both sides, but definitely in the north, right? And so uh, we also should mention here, Dylan, there were some civilians here at this battle that we should probably talk about. Mm-hmm. As the Union was marching in uh, from D.C., uh, a lot of civilians kind of rode along with them in their carriages, whatever. And uh, when they got to the battlefield, they these these people sit up picnics and sat and watched the battle unfold. Uh, so that's that's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's just these were like like senators and their family. Yes, and just, I don't know. That, that's hard to fathom. Isn't it though? Can you imagine just you know being here in this battle and you look to your right on this hill and there's just like kids playing and like yeah exactly people like just watching, watching you die. <laughs> Like, that's strange. It's very strange. But this was like... A very gentlemanly uh, war, Exactly. Because, like, obviously the soldiers didn't bother civilians. You know, they were like, yeah. oh, whatever. Uh, but you just have to think about That's crazy to me to think about these civilians coming out to watch this battle. Like it's a this drive-in movie. Battle. Right. Yeah. All right. Now, when the Union was whooped, and they, they, were, they were, they were beat, you know, pretty fair and square at this battle, these civilians were like, whoop. We better go. Yeah, and they we're like, gonna also run. They miles. also ran thirty miles back <laughs> to DC. But that's just interesting to mention because they, there were reports. People wrote about it, you know, about civilians being there watching the battle because they were like, "Hey, this this war is only going to last very a like, very short time." And everybody knew that this was very important. They knew they were being a part his, of history, yeah, historical moment there. And so they wanted to be there. But uh, yeah, they uh, they were kind of be a sight to see. Yeah, definitely. And so, Dylan, for, for weeks after this, troops streamed back into D.C. because, I mean, it's 30 miles. Usually an average army marched about 20 miles a day, but still they were like basically turned and ran. And so divisions completely just scattered. scattered. Yeah. And so you couldn't really get your men together. So people, it took like you know a good week or so for people to actually funnel back into D.C. And they were like shattered, absolutely done for, right? So uh, Lincoln uh, kind of relieved that gentleman of command. <laughs> yeah, he was probably pretty upset. Right. And this is going to be a, a constant thread with Lincoln, his administration, and finding good generals. He goes through generals like nobody's business. Okay. So mark this up as number one. He fires Irving McDowell. Okay. So that's number one. So he then gives command to a gentleman by the name of George McClellan. Uh, his men called him Little Mac. It's kind of a loving nickname. Uh, and he ordered him to assemble... 100,000 men force and call it the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. which, of course, the Potomac River there separating D.C. from Virginia. And this was the largest American force to ever be assembled. That's all. You got to think about that. 100,000 people. That's a pretty good amount of people. That's uh, a lot of people. And usually, you know, that you didn't see this on a battlefield. You know, you didn't see 100,000 people in yeah. previous wars. Total. Right, right. And so he asked him to form this army and do what? Well, attack Richmond, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, McClellan spent months and months and months training and overestimating the strength of Confederates. Uh, you know, L- uh, Little Mac was basically saying, hey, Lincoln, uh, I think the Confederates have 200,000 troops. Why don't we get another 100,000? Better yet, let's get 150,000 more. And he kept going and going. He was like, uh, uh, they have more, they have more. He was a very, he was, I don't know if you'd say he was scared, but he was just, he was, he was a very careful man. He didn't want to be outnumbered, and he wanted to make sure he got... And, of course, the Confederates had nowhere near that number. Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think they were always, generally always, the larger force right. on the battlefield right. anywhere. Right. And so, you know, the Confederates didn't have that large of a number anyway, but McClellan was like, ooh. You know, he and he was known for very uh, being very loving and very uh, uh, caring to his men. So he didn't really want to send them to be killed anyway, you know, which is basically what you're doing in the battle. So you're going to make sure you had enough men, you know, to kind of overwhelm the enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Lincoln grew impatient and he, he eventually ordered McClellan. Uh, Lincoln was known to be very soft-spoken. He was like, you know, do this, please. Like when you get the chance, blah, blah. But finally Lincoln was like, I'm ordering you to go capture the Capitol in this war. Right. And so basically McCle- he asked McClellan to launch an attack in spring of 1862. This is after eight months of inactivity. Okay. So you get that first major battle uh, at Bull Run, and basically nothing happens on either side for eight months. Now, there's small skirmishes yeah. that happen. But, but then a lot of stuff starts to happen. A lot, after this point, it kind of yeah. slopes downhill, right? 
But anyway, uh, we're going to come back to that at a later date. Uh, there's a lot of battles from this point on that happen in the East. So that eight month inactivity is kind of the only rest uh, these armies are going to see for a long time. Yeah, for okay. several years. So let's leave the East there for a while and let's travel out West, shall we? Let's move uh, and let's talk about Tennessee. Okay. So while Lincoln was kind of fuming over the conditions he had with General McClellan trying to get him to move and do something, uh, he had no such problems with our old friend Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. Oh, yeah. So Grant was uh, known as being very bold and he was restless and he grew very impatient with defensive maneuvers. He was one for attacking. He didn't like hanging back. He was like, we need to go, go, go. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, the Western campaign uh, of the American Civil War was mainly focused on taking control of the Mississippi River. Okay. If you control the river, you can cut off, basically cut the Confederacy in two. Okay. You cut it off from the Trans-Mississippi Theater, okay, which was what we talked about before, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, okay? Now, you may not think these are very important states, but let me tell you what these three states provided to the Confederacy, okay? You had Texas beef, okay? That's going to feed your army, right? Mm -hmm. Louisiana sugar, you need that to also feed your army. And Arkansas lead. Dylan, what do, what do they make with lead? What do you make with lead? What do you need to fire at people? Uh, well, they could have made a lot of things with lead. Yeah, that's true. But I feel like one of the most important things would probably have been ammunition. Right. <laughs> uh, I've had to take a wild guess. Exactly. And kind of need that. Yeah. And Arkansas had a buttload of lead mines. Okay. And so basically, if you cut the South off from, from that lifeline, really, yeah, you kind of starve them out and like, hey, they don't have any ammunition. Really. <laughs> yeah. And so that was the that was the point, basically, of the entire Western theater was cutting, taking control of the Mississippi River, which the North kind of had the majority control of. The Mississippi River starts way up in what, yeah, like Minnesota? I mean, uh, and flows down all the way to the I don't Gulf know Mexico. where it starts. It flows up pretty high. Right. I mean, and, it's literally the heart of the country. Right. I mean, honestly. Exactly. And they at least have control all the way down to Kentucky, right? Yeah. And so they've got a lot of river already. But anyway, they, they want to control that, cut off uh, the Mississippi River, split the Confederacy in two. That's the whole topic. That's the whole reproach of the Western theater. You're going to see that over and over. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in February of 1862, Grant led uh, an assault force into Tennessee. Now there had been a lot of battles happening smaller in Kentucky because, you know, you had a lot of Confederates in Kentucky. Now Kentucky was a border state, you know, they were a slave state that stayed loyal to the union, but they were very deeply divided. We talked about that mm -hmm. in the first episode of the series, right? So there's a lot going on in Kentucky, but we're not really going to touch on that. Let's just focus here, okay? So in February of 1862, Grant led an assault force into Tennessee with the help of some Navy gunboats. So this has never happened before. Uh, different uh, branches of the Army uh, getting together, or the military rather, getting together. So you have the Army and the Navy kind of joining forces. And as Grant would march by land, the Navy would float down by the river, okay? And they, also, they were kind of like teaming up with each other. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, Grant moved his army, which was called uh, the Army of Tennessee. Okay. Army of uh, the Tennessee, excuse me. And so we're going to have to, we're going to be confused with that a lot, Dylan. There was also a Confederate army called the Army of Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. And so if there's ever a the in the title, that is a uh, Northern Army. So, because that's named after like river. Yeah, like the Potomac River, the Tennessee, Tennessee River. Right. Or there's even a, a Union Army of the Mississippi. Yeah. And there is a Confederate Army of Mississippi, mm -hmm. which is the state of Mississippi. You know? yeah. so it gets very confusing. Uh, but anyway. And so basically, the first engagement here in Tennessee, uh, Grant decided he was going to move upon two major forts, Forts Henry and Donaldson. So, Dylan, why don't you take us in the first speaking on? Uh, Fort Henry. Yeah. So, like you said, this, this starts to happen. Uh, the attack on Fort Henry happens in February of 1862. There's right. been several months of basically nothing going on mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, actual conflict. East A lot of like, training, that kind of thing. Right. And I feel like at this point, the Confederates are probably really like living high on the hog. Cause it's oh, like, definitely. We've basically won the two, the only two like real engagements of this whole ordeal. We've just come in and totally stomped them. Yeah. So they're probably like <laughs> feeling pretty good. Yeah. So, like I said, this is in February of 1862. Uh, the Battle of Fort Henry happens and it ends up being 
really one of the first, you know, pretty important victories for the Union in the war. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's at this point the the, the first victory. <laughs> so that, I guess it was pretty significant. Definitely. Uh, so this fort was built in 1861, uh, right when the war was starting. Right. They built this fort on the Tennessee River. And this fort was very – this and Fort Donaldson, which we'll talk about in a minute, was very important because whoever controlled these forts basically controlled the Tennessee River system uh, and the Cumberland, Cumberland River, which is about 10 miles away. Right, very uh, close. They control basically controlled Nashville, pretty much everything from Nashville to the uh, Appalachian Mountains. I mean, yeah, you know, pretty much important. half of the state of Tennessee, exactly. essentially. So, obviously, Grant kind of set his sights on, on these two forts. Yeah. So, like I said, they they basically wanted to gain control of this river system, and Grant had about fifteen thousand troops. Mm-hmm. And he, as you said, with the the Navy at the time, he mm-hmm. partnered with a uh, a guy named Andrew Foote. Mm-hmm. He was the commander of this fleet of uh, ironclad and timberclad gunboats. Mm-hmm. So they set their sights on the fort. Uh, Foote and his men sail up the Tennessee River to begin their attack on Fort Henry. The plan was uh, for Grant to march his army overland and meet them there. Mm -hmm. Due to like heavy rains and stuff like that, they're slowed down. So on February 6th, 1862, uh, Foote and his gunboats open up fire on Fort Henry. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, the Confederates inside the fort were severely outnumbered. They fired on the fort, pretty much destroyed all of their defensive guns. Yeah. Um, at the time, the commander of this fort was a Confederate Brigadier General Lloyd Tilgman. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I mean, it was really just a sweep. I mean, they finished this battle before Grant ever even got there. Yeah. Like he's like, he surrendered to the Navy. Yeah. He surrendered to the <laughs> Navy and Grant wasn't even there. He came like the next day. Next day. Yeah. So he realized that this is a pretty severe fight. So he evacuated, secretly evacuated as many troops as he could. Uh, right. To the nearby Fort Donaldson, which was on the Cumberland River, right. which, like I said, that's about ten miles, 10 miles away, away. Yeah. Uh, from Fort Henry. So this was a very quick, you know, one and done kind of battle. It was like they yeah. showed up, fired on it a few times, or not a few. They fired on it, and then they're like, Pretty "Okay, heavily. whoa, you know, yeah, you can have it. It's yours." Mm-hmm. So uh, the Confederates surrendered on board the uh, USS Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and the Union took control of the fort. And as I said, due to like muddy roads and stuff, Grant's army was delayed in getting there. Mm-hmm. And they show up after the fort was already surrendered. So by the time they get there, <laughs> it's in Union control. And right. everybody else is, that didn't get captured or surrendered is gone. Right. Uh, very cut and dry. Definitely. You know, here it is. Definitely. It's ours. Yeah. So I think it's important to mention there, Dylan, uh, they capture that fort, right? Yeah. Fort Henry. Uh, and this opens up the entirety of the Tennessee River. That was the only fort they built. Yeah. On the- <laughs> Which, granted, they didn't have a lot of time to prepare. Yeah, like I said, this fort was built in during the war, right? Basically, you know. And so uh, that opened up Tennessee, the Tennessee River, and basically opened up for Union traffic all the way into Alabama, right? The Tennessee River flows yeah. all the way down across through Alabama. So that really opens up all of West Tennessee, you know, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Not this is not counting the land troops at the yeah. Confederacy here with it still there, but. Uh, during this time, the Confederate Navy was not very good. No, uh, didn't have much of a navy at all. The majority not of the where, whereas you know, if you think of it as the army, you had a lot of people who were in the Union Army who left the Union Army to join the Confederacy. I.e., like Robert E. Lee, right? mm-hmm. he was offered command right in the uh, Union Army, but you know, obviously sided with the Confederacy. And this happened a lot of times. So in the Navy, the majority of the people who were in the Navy started stayed loyal. To the Union. So the majority of the boats. I don't blame them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, but anyway, I just thought that was Im- important to note that uh, the Union basically with that one swift victory opened up the majority of Tennessee. Yeah, it was a very important victory to have. And it was a very quick and uh, I don't know the number of casualties, but it wasn't a very bloody battle. It was a very quick, you know, they could just kind of showed up, bombed it, and it was theirs. Exactly. Very cut and dry, like you said. Yeah. So, Dylan, what about Fort Donaldson? So, as we said, um, these were really the only two, like these two forts controlled the Tennessee and the Cumberland River, mm-hmm. which, as you said, were very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, fort Donaldson was about 10 miles away from Fort Henry, so they were very close. Right. So, the people who managed to escape Fort Henry uh, went for Fort Donaldson. Right. 
And a week later, so the Union are stationed, uh, Grant and Foote's Naval Fleet are stationed at Fort Henry. So the, And it's only 10 miles. It's very close, especially considering they have ships and things. Right. So a week later, uh, after the fall of Fort Henry, uh, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston rushed 18,000 troops to defend Fort Donaldson because they knew it was coming. They're right. Like, well, that's here they come. Yeah, here they come. <laughs> so he rushed 18,000 of his Confederate troops to Fort Donaldson to try right. and help uh, kind of beef it up a little bit okay. because they knew it was coming. Right. And so Foote sailed his fleet of six gunboats mm-hmm. uh, to Fort Donaldson. And uh, on February 14th, uh, his boats exchanged. I read this in an article, and uh, I think it might have been some from some of General Grant's personal writings. I don't, I can't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but the term they used was a uh, quote unquote Iron Valentines. Oh, so yeah, because this uh, was on Valentine's Day. Yeah, his yeah. his fleet uh, exchanged Iron Valentines with uh, eleven of the Confederate guns, uh, artillery the guns that they yeah. had in in the batteries. So this lasted about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And during this, uh, General Foote was actually wounded, and uh-huh. uh, the several of his gunboats were actually damaged enough that they they actually pulled those back. They kind of retreated a little bit, yeah, because they they did take some pretty heavy damage. Yeah, these artillerymen seem to be a lot better than the ones who were at Fort Henry. Right? Yeah, and they were also <laughs> obviously much more prepared and right, exactly. kind of knew what was coming. Yeah. Kind of knew what was coming, and so the Confederacy, the the troops there, they kind of rejoiced at this small victory. They're like, okay, yeah. well, you know, we we held them off, we pushed them back. Yep. Uh, but then it didn't take them very long to realize that they were in some pretty deep stuff, <laughs> because they started to realize that in in the meantime, while all this is happening, um, Grant and his men, Grant had basically extended his one of his uh, his right flank, right, and they pretty much had them completely trapped. Yeah. So right. you've got. To their backs is the Cumberland River, River. Yeah. and you basically have Grant's troops in a semicircle around them. Around yeah. the so mm-hmm. yeah, so they are like okay, uh, yeah. we got a problem. Right, and this was called a, a siege. Yes. Right, you surround your enemy and basically tr- trap them, uh, starve them out, or bomb them, or something. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that was the plan. That was the deal. Yeah, he was just going to encircle them and you know either wait it out, you starve them out, or right. Do whatever he had to do to take this. Right. So, what was the Confederate response to this? So, on February fifteenth, eighteen sixty-two, they basically decide that they had to make a push to clear a path through this right flank. Exactly. Because they knew if they, you know, let them close it up and get a really good stronghold on the area, that they were pretty much done for. So they actually did pretty well. They they attacked, made a push through, and they actually caused some of that flank of Grant's men to retreat a little retreat, bit. So they yeah. actually gained some ground. Mm-hmm. But they made a very terrible mistake here, a very grave mistake. Yeah. So they were ordered to return back to their entrenchments after this. So they they pushed forward, pushed Grant's men back. Instead of continuing, and, and a lot of this was, I think, due to just miscommunication and kind yeah. of the chaos of the situation, uh, they were ordered to fall back to their, to their entrenchments that they had. How dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, and when this happens... Grant pretty much immediately launched a counterattack. Yeah. He's like, okay, we're going for it. Like you said, he was very uh, offensive. Right. Very he was. go get them. Go get them. So they immediately launched a counterattack and they completely closed them in. They compl- completely closed in the fort and even gained a little bit more ground right. than they had. It, so Exactly. And Dylan, I think it's important to mention here the whole point of them pushing that right flank, they were trying to open up an escape route. Yeah, they weren't. They were wanting to book there. it to Nashville. Right, that was where they were trying to go. Nashville. That's the capital. Because they knew if Fort Donaldson fell, it was Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. Next. <laughs> exactly. Like dominoes, right? Yeah. And so that was the whole point. They were like, "We want to get a break." This is a breakout attempt, basically. Uh, and they basically the did you mention the Confederate commander in that fort? What his name was? Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I forgot to. There were a couple uh, commanders there: uh, General John Floyd and right. Gideon Pillow. Right, were there in command. Right, and so uh, Floyd was the one who, uh, as I understand, kind of was like, "Hey, let's let's get this attack." And he kind of lost the nerve, you know. Yeah, it kind of called him back into the fort, and that was a terrible move. I'd like to see how it played out if he if they would have kept going. And yeah, they may. I don't know. They maybe could have held him off enough, but right, that you was that was the final nail in the coffin or whatever. For, exactly. For them. Right. They didn't know it at the time. Right. So as I said, they. Grant launch, launches a counterattack. They completely close in the fort. Uh, so they're back 
honestly in a worse place than where they started. Yeah. So, as I said, Confederate generals John Floyd and Gideon Pillow, at this point, they pretty much decide that surrender is their only option. Yeah. So, what they do is they cede command of the fort to Brigadier General uh, Simon Buckner. Mm-hmm. And they retreated along with about 2,000 men to Nashville. So, okay. they made it yep. out. They made it out. Gave him control of the fort, and he, he surrendered it over to the right. Union. Oh, you guys I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say there is an important thing to mention here about our friend Simon Bolivar Buckner. There's a reason that they relinquished command to him. Okay, so let's uh, let's discuss that a moment. So, uh, just like anything that we talk about in Civil War, uh, there's some people who kn- who knew each other on either sides. Yes. Right? So Buckner and Grant were long ago friends from okay, that, mil- that. that military college, West Point. Yeah. Okay. And so here was the idea that the Confederates had. Of course, they took the majority of the troops out, all that they could kind of sneak out. Yeah. Right? But the deal was they were like, hey, if we leave command to Buckner, he knows Grant. Grant knows him. Grant will go easy on him, and maybe we'll let the troops leave and come back into the South. Just like that's what um, our friend Beauregard did to the Northern Army. You know, his old instructor was there inside the fort. After mm-hmm. the battle, he let them all go back to the north in return, right? He didn't capture any of them. Yeah, it was a very, like I said, it was a gentleman's war. Yeah, what people call really. It, but it was- and so they were, at the time, they were like, hey, uh, Grant's going to be go easy on Buckner. Uh, they also served in the Mexican War together. So they were in the same uh, regiment, as I understand. Mm-hmm. And so they were, you know, well-known with each other, right? And so that's very interesting to note. That's or that's an important note to have when you think yeah. about why. See, I didn't know, know that, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it's crazy to think that this happened a lot in the wars that people yeah, did. who were very close friends in military school and previous wars, yep. you know, they end up on different sides of the same coin. And, yeah. you know, so another thing that I'd like to mention is there was also another person of interest here that was present at this fort, uh, in the Confederate mm-hmm. army. Yep. And this is at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yep. All Forrest. So, he as well, he is present, and he was just disgusted with the oh, idea definitely. of surrender, it's, which is very characteristic of him yeah. uh, throughout and it, the war. It's very important to note about Forrest. He was the only general uh, in the entire Confederate Army to work his way up all the way from private. So he started out as a private, and basically uh, he raised enough money to form his own uh, unit of uh, cavalry mm-hmm. and uh, basically uh, raised his unit up and uh, became rose to the rank of general. And so he was the only one to do that. He rose. He went from private to general, and he was a he, he was one of the only Confederate generals to not have any traditional military schooling. Okay. Yeah. But he was a he had a brilliant military yeah, he mind. Genius. He was a, he was a military. He was genius. an excellent cavalryman. He excellent, like the very best. Yes. Both sides. So let's talk about him. So he was there, uh, and like I said, he was absolutely disgusted with the idea of surrendering anything. Mm-hmm. So he takes uh, him and his cavalrymen. I don't know exactly how many were there. Uh, uh, several hundred. Yeah, I think it was a you know a decent amount. Yeah. He takes him and all of his men, and they also escape. Yep. Uh, they said bump all this. We yeah, he was care. like, I ain't surrendering nothing. <laughs> right. He's like, I'll I'll leave and I'll go fight yeah. somewhere. And else. that's very yeah, like you said, that's who he was as yeah. a person. So all that happened on the fifteenth on February sixteenth, uh, the fort was surrendered, and the Union now controlled both Fort Henry right. and Donaldson. It's also interesting that. I think more so Fort Donaldson, but both of these forts, the surrendering surrendering of them, this is where Grant received his famous nickname of a uh, quote unquote no surrender or unconditional, unconditional surrender, surrender Grant. Grant, which goes with his initials. Not yeah, fine. U.S. <laughs> and that's what people called him because that was that was his thing. You yeah. know, even if they left Buckner there to hopefully kind of ease the yeah, it didn't work. But <laughs> Grant's thing, pretty much from this point throughout the yeah. war, was. Nothing but Nothing unconditional but, surrender. Right. You, it's, you know, we own you now. Exactly, <laughs> really. And it's interesting to note here, the whole point, you know, like they got in, there's writings of this from both Grant and Buckner, I believe. You know, they come in and Buckner's being all chummy, being like, hey, old friend, you know, blah, 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 whatever. He's like, no. He's like, R- really? No. He's like, hey, he's like, so what can we work out? He's like, here's what I was thinking. And kind of shows Grant, what do you want? And Grant's like, mm, unconditional surrender. Those yeah. are my terms. He said, unconditional surrender. Those are my terms. And basically he left him with nothing. And yeah. so, like I said, he got that great nickname. Pretty cool nickname, honestly. Yeah. Nickname you want. And so, yeah. So, Donaldson fell. And basically, that opened up much of Tennessee, including Nashville. Yeah. Like I said, it opened up pretty much, I think, well, everything basically, I think from Nashville 
eastward yeah. is a good way to look at it. And that and was they kind got, of the last outpost. Because, like I said, the Confederates were still kind of probing into Kentucky. And that was the last outpost that kind of helped them to do that. And so, yeah. at this point, Kentucky is basically out of play. This was a very important – because, I mean, there was a lot of – Obviously, the two rivers, mm-hmm. a big supply of routes. Yeah. Nashville was a major railway hub. Yep. And the capital and, of Tennessee. <laughs> and the capital of Tennessee. And I believe there was a large uh, armory there. Very. And uh, and they got all that. They had access to all that yep. now. So it was a very, two very important. Mm-hmm. And honestly, not for the Union, I've, not terribly difficult victories. Right. You know, they're pretty, pretty much in a sense, pretty much very easy in perspective. Right. Um, so Dylan, that's, that kind of sums up. Those are our major first two major, or if you want to call that our first major engagement, that was kind of both in the same campaign. If you want to say that was the campaign to capture Henry Donaldson. That was like the first large scale battle. Yeah. That we saw in the Western theater. And I feel like at this point, this, the score quote unquote, the tally is two to two. Right, and, uh, you know, I feel like at this point, it's the you know it swaps sides. I feel like you know the Union had pretty high morale. Yeah, and also during this, I think it's worth mentioning. You know, Grant really he was already a well known general, but right. he really I think kind of rose. This really booted his popularity up. You know, made him a whole lot cooler of a dude. It definitely did. You know, he was kind of a hero. He definitely was. So on the topic of Grant, let's talk about some of his philosophies. He had. Uh, what a professor at, at state called uh, Grant's philosophy of war. Okay. And he kind of, this was one thing that stuck with me uh, being through that because it was a whole class just about the Americans of war. Okay. So let's talk about that. He had basically four steps and this is basically what he did. Number one, yeah, find your enemy, find who you're going for. And at this topic, he's going for uh, the forts, Henry Donaldson, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, get at him as quick as you can. Uh, and we see that Grant moving lightning quick, uh, trying to get there. Of course, the rain kind of slowed him down uh, here and there. You're always going to have elements. Yeah, in especially the way. in the South. Right. And so, but that was his second step, you know, get him as quick as you can. Number three, strike at him as hard as you can. You can see that. When the Confederates tried to push out of the fort, he was like, nope. And then, bah, you know, really hits him hard yeah. on that flank, on that right flank, right? And number four, keep moving on. So you see that after that after that first you know after uh, Henry falls, yeah, he, within the week he's back he's over. Yeah, he never really Donaldson. stops. Right, and he's always after the battle. He's like, all right, move on next one, which is different from what you're going to see in the East with a few of these generals. You're going to see these generals be defeated and they're going to retreat back to Washington, regroup, see what they can do. All the time, the Confederates are reevaluating, regathering troops, men, and uh, maybe even pushing north. You know, at the same time, whereas Grant is the whole time. South, south, south. You know, he's pushing. Yeah, he's just... Right. And so that's basically his philosophy, right? You know, you want to find your enemy, uh, get at him, strike a blow, and keep moving. Yeah. Which is very... Uh, that's what he did. Coincides with his with his, uh, with his his uh, popularity and, and everything mm-hmm. as well. But, but anyway, so that kind of opens up uh, that part of Tennessee, and Grant continues to march south, okay? So, Dylan, where does he find himself at this point? So after... The forts fall. They've they basically have they have the forts, much of Tennessee, uh, Nashville, all these key places. He sets his sights uh, on Corinth, Mississippi. Corinth, Mississippi. Yeah, which was also a pretty big railway hub, mm-hmm. and so it was a big major supply line uh, for this part of you know the Deep South. Yep. And so that's kind of where he sets his sights on. So he ends up in camping near a place called Pittsburgh Landing. Right. Which is in Tennessee, I want to say twenty some odd miles, miles yeah. uh, north northeast right. of Corinth. Dylan, I think it's before we get on too far. Yeah. I need to mention something about Corinth. Okay, so you, you mentioned that railroad crossing. Yes, very important. The two railroads you've got the uh, Mobile and Ohio, mm-hmm. and the Memphis and Charleston, which yeah. is where these railroads are going. So you've got uh, this railroad that gets, stretches from Memphis, goes through Corinth, and shoots all the way to Charleston. So this is a you know, direct route to the East Coast. Yep. And you've got the Mobile, which goes from Mobile on the Gulf of Mexico all the way up north into Ohio, right? Yeah, very, very major. Right. And so this is a really... Railway hub. This was the heart of the Confederacy, if you want to think about it, okay? Uh, this was like where you had to get at. Lincoln himself uh, recognized Corinth as being a very strategic location. Yeah. Okay. They had to get at it 
and get to it quick. Okay. It's kind of hard to think about because, you know, we yeah, you live pretty I, close to yeah, Carnival. So it's are like close. you drive through there and it's like, you don't think it's not that big of a town. You don't think that much about it. Right. But having those railroads there at this day and time, day and age or whatever, it was. Yeah. Obviously, it was a very, very important place exactly. to be. And the Maybe one of the most important at this time. singular, you know, strongholds in terms of the resources it could provide. Right. Slash prevent the South from having. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So that's what they're trying to get at. Yeah. The whole goal, I think, after this, after those two forts is, is Corinth. Yep. Yeah. Let's get here and do yep. it. And so, Dylan, it's important to note that Grant knew there was a rebel army yep. there in Corinth under the command of the guy we mentioned earlier, Albert Sidney Johnston. Yes. Okay. And so he's there uh, and he's camped in Corinth and, uh, you know, Grant's just hanging out He and he's, uh, who's he waiting on Dylan? He's waiting on somebody. So he is waiting uh, on a guy, a union major general by the name of Don Buell. Mm -hmm. Don Carlos Buell. Yeah. Indeed. Don Buell, his army of, of Ohio is mm -hmm. marching overland from Nashville. Army, so, of, army of the Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> army of the Ohio. You're right. It's confusing. And uh, so, like I say, Grant ends up near a place called Pittsburgh Landing, like right. so, which is about 20, 22, some, some odd miles yeah. north of uh, Corinth. So they're basically just kind of chilling, waiting on Buell to get there. Exactly. So they can do combined push. Yeah. And Grant was ordered specifically, do not engage uh, the Confederates until you yeah. join forces. Right. And see, Buell was a higher ranking general. Yes. And so Buell was like, you better wait on me. And of course, Grant had to be like, okay. Yeah. So he was specifically ordered not to. And the whole goal is they're going to meet up and then they're going to go to Corinth and just sack it. Kick tail. <laughs> well, something happens before that. And it's uh, it does. what we call the Battle of Shiloh. Or if you're, uh, depending on where you're at, people also call it the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing. Exactly. It was called, you know, the Battle of Shiloh. It, there, was a, there was a famous church now yeah. uh, that, that was there. Of course, it, it's actually still... There's a church still out there on the location. Yeah, called Shiloh still Church. Tent, which in Hebrew means place of peace, which is kind of yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a, I don't know, ironic, I guess. Ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Because of what happened there. But. Exactly. So let's move forward. Let's talk about that. So uh, in Corinth, um, Opportunity Johnston is camped there. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, there are still some of the original buildings standing in Corinth. And he had his headquarters this time at a place called uh, the Veranda House, uh, otherwise known as the Curly House. You guys can do your own research. Google that. Uh, beautiful pictures. You can find original pictures from the Civil War, actually. So uh, Sidney Johnston is uh, actually staying across the road from that actual headquarters in, at a house. Uh, he has a vision in the night, uh, and he goes across the road to the headquarters, calls all of his commanders, off, commanding officers together. And I've been in the room, actually, Dylan, where they – yeah, kind of got together and made this decision. So he's he told him, guys, I've had a vision. He was also a deeply religious man, uh, mm -hmm. like a, a lot of people were at this time yeah. on both sides. And uh, he was like, you know, I've had a vision from God. We can surprise uh, the Union where they're at. He knew because the 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 the, North, the South had uh, spies, not really not really spies, but kind of they're called skirmishers. They went out of, in front of the army and kind of. Kind of, you know, we're scouting out what's going on. Yeah. Scouts, I guess, is, you want, is a better term for it. So they knew that they were close, right? And so he's basically like, I had a vision. We can surprise them. And all his generals were like, no, no, there's no way. Because Johnston was known as a very uh, defensive man. Where Grant was known as being very offensive, Johnston was known as being a very defensive. And so he was known. You can go in Corinth now on the outskirts, and you can still visit some of the earthworks that they made. Because they dug in around Corinth. They were expecting that. Yeah. And but Johnston was like, hey, no, something tells me I had this vision. We've got to go. And so that's where we get to where we're at. This battle was never supposed to happen. Yeah, it was never planned by anybody. No, but it definitely happened. And did. Johnston definitely did go, and he definitely did catch him by surprise. Yeah, he did. So uh, let's let's jump right, which into is that. pretty interesting. So as we said, Grant is camping out, waiting on Buell. Yeah. So Johnston rallies his men, and they go, they march uh, to Pittsburgh Landing, and and catch Grant's men by surprise. At this time, Buell's army isn't there yet. Right. It's just Grant's army. Yeah. And so how, what is the size of the Confederate army? So the Confederate army totaled about 45,000 troops, which is a lot. A lot of people. Uh, and the Union numbers, by the time Buell arrived, was about 62,000. Right. So this is before Buell got there, and so it's not near. So it's not, yeah. Number. It's about they're still They're still outnumbered. Right. But not as bad. Right. right? Um. 
so, and this battle basically happens on April 6th and 7th right. of 1862. So just a couple months after these two forts fall. Exactly. So as we can see, Grant's making pretty quick work of, yeah, yes. or trying to make pretty quick work of the South. Right. So they're camping there. On April 6th, uh, Johnson and his men attack the southernmost federal camps and at Pittsburgh, or near Pittsburgh Landing, and mm-hmm. they completely caught them by surprise. Yeah. These guys were like, had just woken up. They were cooking breakfast. Yeah, they were just chilling in camp. Chilling. And as we said, Grant was very offensive. Yeah. And after this battle later on, he kind of received some criticism for this because he had, there was no defensive plan. No, not at all. So they were, it was kind of an every man for himself thing. It was just p- panic, <laughs> chaos. <laughs> Definitely. You know, there was because there was no plan for this. There wasn't like training for, hey, if we get ambushed, well, you know, what are we going to do? Right. There was no like formations. It was Mm -hmm. just like, I just woke up trying to eat some breakfast. Right. And And these dudes are running out of the woods. Here's some ribs. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so the rebels sweep the Union. I mean, they just. Oh, definitely. Come through and. Level. Decimate them, basically. Well, the Union, uh, they did manage to kind of muster a counterattack. And but they really they just continued to slowly lose ground, mm-hmm. and they fell back closer back towards uh, Pittsburgh Landing. Right. So, I think it's important to note here, Dylan. Uh, of course, there are a lot of terms, a lot of words that we hear out this battle. Of course, we're not going into great detail on this battle. Yeah. But there are many things that are etched into our memory, uh, such as the Hornet's Nest, uh, Bloody Pond, Peach Orchard. You know. And so I think it's important to note that you were talking about that stand that they tried to yes. put up. That was at the place called the Hornet's Nest, and it was. And some of these names came after the battle. After, of course, yeah. Like the Hornet's Nest was, uh, was after. Kind of received that name from some of the survivors, exactly, because it was such a deadly, mm-hmm. specifically deadly part mm-hmm. of this, you know, battlefield. And it was right in the center of the Union line, and basically, it got this name because the bullets whizzing by you, it sounded like you're being swarmed by hornets. It was so many bullets being fired, like you know, zipping by you, and it was a terrible place of death. Basically, it was a. The Hornet's Nest was a sunken road, which basically is a wagon trail that over the years of being traveled had had eroded down. Yeah. And it provided them great cover. And basically, the Confederates kept attacking across the field. They'd attack and they retreat, attack and retreat. And eventually, you know, uh, were able to push through and uh, broke the line. But it, it was it was noted in many writings that you could possibly walk across that uh, opening, that kind of that, because it was, if you've never been to, Shiloh, that battleground, there, there's a large opening between where the uh, Hornet's Nest was and then where the Confederate line was, where they were sending men from. Yeah. They said you could walk from one end of the field to the other and not touch ground because you were stepping on bodies. So that's crazy. Yeah. Right? And it's it, crazy to go there and see And, of that course, too. that's probably uh, – we didn't have photographic uh, evidence at this time. They really didn't bring cameras out to the battlefield at this early in the war. And so we don't have any evidence of this. So this could be exaggerated a little bit, yeah. but it's still Media. a lot of people were, were killed, right, in this first day. Yeah, it was very, very a serious battle. Right, definitely. And uh, so that same afternoon, Johnston was basically leading an attack on the Union line. Mm-hmm. And here he is shot in the knee. The the bullet itself didn't kill him instantly or anything, no. but it, did, it severed an artery in his leg. Yeah. And he pretty quickly bled to death. Yeah. And that was a pretty significant blow to the morale, the morale of oh, definitely. the Confederacy. Yeah. And it's very interesting to note, Dylan. I know I keep butting in. I'm sorry. No, no. There was a lot of interesting things here. Uh, he had actually sent his surgeon because each general really had their own private surgeon. Yeah. Right? He sent his surgeon to go take care of Union captured wounded. So yeah. he was he was known for being very kind-hearted. So he sent yeah. his surgeon to go help the wounded on the other side. Well, he was struck behind the knee. Uh, he was wearing boots, knee-high boots, okay? And uh, they had saw, you know, he was kind of leering in the saddle. And they're like, General, what's wrong? And about that time, they saw his boot was gushing over with blood. It had filled up yeah. with blood. And, of course, his surgeon had gone. Usually, they'd slap a tourniquet on it, which basically, you know, cuts off the yeah, blood flow. Yeah, just pinch it. And, and he probably would have survived, cut it off. right? They could have cut off the blood flow, and they probably would have had to have his leg amputated, oh, sure, maybe. Yeah. Uh, of course, it only severed the artery. Maybe it's something they could have done. But anyway, he he did. He, he bled out for that reason, right? His, mm-hmm. his surgeon was gone. No one there to help him. So, his kind-heartedness kind of got him killed. Yeah, which is day. really crazy. Yeah. But that was a serious blow, uh throughout all the Confederacy, because I know even President Jefferson Davis, per, both personally and kind of like professionally, held this man as, a, held him very high. Yeah. You know. And he was the highest ranking general in the entire Confederate Army 
Yes. And he would be the highest ranking on either side for the entire war to die. Yeah. So for the rest of the war, there'd never be a more high ranking official to die. Yeah. And so he was basically like, if there was one, a five star general. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So it like, was a very serious yeah. he blow was to the morale. The ultimate he was like the overall commander of the Confederate forces. Yeah. At this time. And so he, now he's dead. Right. Yeah. So at this time, uh our friend General PGT Beauregard of course. is here and he has appointed uh the new commander yep. of the forces there. So they even though Johnson dies, they they lead this attack on the Union uh, yep. line. They push him back, night is approaching. And Beauregard thinks, okay, uh, we've won. He basically claims victory, mm-hmm. and that he calls off all of their attacks. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting to note here. Uh, of course, we're going to jump back to the north for just a second. Then I've got some, yeah. I've got a quote here I want to read about. So uh, Grant is there, obviously, and another gentleman that we're going to talk more about later, uh, General uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, is mm-hmm. also there. Yeah. Uh, Sherman and Grant become great friends. Yeah. And so they're talking. And uh, Grant is out, uh, kind of away from the army, just kind of by himself. I believe at this time, I want to say he was five, six, seven, eight, nine miles away. Something he wasn't very far away, right? If that far, right? But he was, and he, know, he was right, wasn't so, on the front lines or anything, right? He he was actually before that he was at, he was actually in, in Savannah, Tennessee, and he had actually heard the sounds of battle and rode down, got in the battle anyway. So he, he finally got there by the time the battle had actually started, got engaged. So the end of the day rolls around, right? He's there with Sherman. Uh, Sherman walks up to him and is like, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant's like, yep, look on tomorrow though. And so Grant had hope and Grant was like, you know, we're going to whoop tail tomorrow. Basically lick them in those days was basically a term like, Hey, we're going to yeah. beat them up. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so Dylan, that's the end of the first day. Grant had hope. Was there hope to be had? What's going on? Yeah, well, so the the first day ends, Beauregard's feeling pretty good. I mean, all things considered, he feels like they they've pretty much kind of got this thing won. Yeah. Well, unbeknownst to him, Buell arrives overnight. Yeah. And it seems like this happens a lot in the Civil War. It's like just perfect time. <laughs> it's like this this army was delayed a day, and it was perfect time for this to happen. You know, it's almost like divine intervention. Yeah. In so way. it's like Buell arrives from Nashville with all these men overnight. So it's that's yeah. a huge boost. Now, what was it? Sixty. Uh, sixty-two thousand yeah, total n- now with the army yeah. of Ohio there, uh, minus whatever casualties they would have had, you know, right, of course, throughout the day. So he arrives, and the morning of April seventh, I believe, around six a.m., mm, very early, early in the morning. Uh, Grant launches a counterattack against the Confederates, and they were immediately ordered to counterattack back exactly. by Beauregard, which you know that makes sense. So they end up having to fall back and regroup, and. After that, he orders a second counterattack. You know, yep. they're just attacking, coming back, attacking, just trying to break yep, through. Exactly. So they fall back, regroup, and Beauregard orders them a second counterattack. And this actually did stop the federal advance, but it kind of ended in a stalemate. It kind of yeah. it halted them, slowed them down, but there really wasn't like a winner of you know of this. Exactly. It was kind of a they just all you know kind of fizzled out. Right. So during this time. Here comes some of these gunboats again because the Tennessee Uh-oh. River is here, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. close enough to this battlefield that you know they can fire. Mm-hmm. So the USS Tyler and the USS Lexington, uh, which were two timber-clad gunboats, yeah. they provided Grant with artillery support from the Tennessee River. So yeah. during all this, they're just bombarding them. Yep. You know, so day one's looking pretty good for the Confederacy. Day two started to look a whole lot better for the Union. Yeah. And so around 3 p.m. that day, Beauregard and his army finally, he finally is like, okay, you know, these boats are here. We can't do it. So they come back and they retreat to Corinth. So Beauregard and his men retreat back to Corinth. That's kind of, I mean, the 6th and April 6th and 7th, that's basically what's the, you know, the Battle of Shiloh. At at that point, the battle's kind of over. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a surrender or anything. Right. But the Union claimed victory. Which for the majority of battles in the Civil War, there's not, you know, necessarily a clear and, winner yeah and there's not necessarily a surrender either like the yeah. army is just kind of like leave, leave. yeah <laughs> but on uh one thing i feel is worth mentioning the next day on april 8th uh brigadier generals william sherman like you said and mm-hmm. thomas wood are dispatched by grant to basically overtake any remaining confederates as yeah. they're retreating or whatever and uh they run into a familiar name again 
Nathan Bedford Forest. Oh, yeah. I want to say it was roughly six miles or so south yeah. of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So they run into uh, Forrest and his cavalrymen, and obviously they aren't going to surrender. Nathan, no. you know, so he launches an attack back on them. <laughs> and basically he, he is the rear guard. And basically a rear guard is somebody who yeah. is picked to stay behind and basically protect the, because everybody else has turned around, like marching away, running away. Yeah. Whatever. And so he was there to kind of protect, slow him down. Right. Yeah. So in a bold move, uh, you know, that's exactly what they did, but in a bold move that, you know, they charged, he basically charged ahead of his men yeah. straight at him. Yeah. And he he basically gets shot at point blank range. Yeah, and uh, it doesn't kill him though. No, he somehow survives that. He nearly dies, and but he ends up living. He had to go through some pretty difficult surgery to remove the bullet. But yeah, he fully recovers um, from it. You know, in his yeah. life, and doesn't die from it. There, but he did stop their advance. Yeah, it, it worked. He almost died. It but it worked. And there's probably there's a more interesting story there as well. There's probably a reason why he didn't get shot more. As he charged forward, obviously he found himself surrounded. People were like shoving their bayonets at him, trying to shoot him. Yeah. What Forrest did was he scooped down and picked up a soldier, a Union soldier, and threw him on the back of the horse with him, and then rode away. And the only reason they weren't shooting at it was because behind him, guard, you know, basically being a meat shield was this this confederate. I mean, this Union soldier. And when he got far enough away out of musket range, he threw the guy off. Right. Yeah. So, which was very. Like this is this was forced all the way, right? Yeah. You hear these stories, it's like, oh yeah, that sounds just like something. Like something that would only happen in a movie. You know, right. Like, and he rides up, you know, these the union come. He's like, all right, I'm doing it. You know, he rides, <laughs> rides this dude, throws him on his back, just goes at him. Goes at him. It's like I don't even know if he had a plan, I don't know, but he just goes. Probably not. It does yeah. get like I said, he gets shot, he lives. Yeah. But it's it's basically considered successful. I mean, he holds yeah. off their advance. The Confederates allowed to retreat back to Corinth. Yeah. And uh, basically the Union claims victory. But yep. I'd like to kind of talk about the casualties and stuff. Yeah, go ahead. As I said, the, the Confederates retreated. So the Union claims victory, and that's – I mean, the Union was victorious. But for me personally, it's kind of hard to see how anybody in this outcome was really victorious. I mean – Yeah, that's true. So the Confederates were severely outnumbered throughout the entirety of this battle – but they actually put a pretty good whooping on the Union. They did. They really did. The Union actually had more casualties yep. uh, than the Confederacy did, which is interesting. So by the time it was all done, the Union had a total of 13,047 casualties. Right. Uh, this includes 1,754 people that were confirmed killed, mm-hmm. uh, 8,408 were wounded, and 2,885 were either missing or captured by the Confederacy. Right. So that's a little over 13, basically 13,000. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, they had about 20,000 more men. Yeah. And the total Confederate casualties totaled uh, 10,669. So they basically had 3,000 less casualties. Right. Even though they had 20,000 less men. Sure. You know. Sure. And of those, it uh, includes 1,728 people killed, 8,012 wounded. And 959 missing slash captured. Right. Yeah. So their numbers, still a lot of casualties. Yeah. I mean, it's a total of almost 24,000 casualties of war. Right. And this was like a massive number. And the American people knew it, both sides, right? Yeah. This it, was published in papers. This went everywhere. And this was, at the time, the largest uh, uh, battle and largest lost uh, amount of life in the Civil War. Yeah, it was really, point. really serious. And it, yeah. it kind of had a lot of, I don't know the term, I guess, like socio, like political side effects, too, because definitely did. after this happened, uh, I know one thing that's worth mentioning is both Grant and General Sherman were really kind of criticized a lot by the public mm-hmm. uh, because they were just caught off guard, which is really probably the main or the only reason that their casualties were so much higher. Sure. Uh, because... They knew there were Confederate forces not that far away, yeah. and it was almost as if they didn't do anything. I mean, he basically, as you said, Grant wasn't really there to begin with. He kind of left Sherman as the man in charge that was physically there, right? And uh, you know, he just Sherman just did a generally, as people saw, it, a pretty terrible job, you mm-hmm. know, and just kind of ignored the existing threats that he knew were there. Exactly, and you know, you can see the same on the flip side. I mean, on the Confederate side, 
uh, Beauregard was ridiculed in the Confederate press for yeah. not pushing his advantage. Like, why did we stop? Uh, yeah. Of course, they were. They didn't mention that it was nighttime. You know? <laughs> of course, yeah. they you can't fight at night. Or there were a lot of civil, there were some civil war battles that happened at night. But you, I mean, you couldn't see. Nobody had night vision goggles. Yeah. Like but still, the 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 people, of course, didn't understand that. They were like, "You should have pressed your advantage." Blah blah. blah. Yeah. And you see this on both sides. Usually, the civilians are harder on the generals than the everyday soldier is. Yeah. You know? And it was even the same. It was different in the terms of, of there wasn't like news stations on TV, but like. You know, there's a lot happening in the media, just as yeah. there is today. Yeah. And it had a lot of power over people's opinions. and Definitely you know, did. So it had a lot of other implications just on the general public as well. Right. And especially on the soldiers that lived through it. You know, everyone's viewpoint of this war, once again, just really changed. Everybody was really kind of taken aback. It was like, okay. You know, especially yeah. the ones that were there. They were, yeah. you know, which is why, like we said, after the war, or after the battle, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the soldiers that fought there and survived it. That's why you see names like the Hornets Nash come up, yeah. you know, they're like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good name for that. Yeah. It's so, terrible. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think that's pretty much, uh, generally kind of sums up the battle of Shiloh. Yeah. I mean, there's talk about it for days. There's, you really could. And I know guys goes into it, you know, this is going to be an extra long episode because we, this is just a lot of information to cover. And the, yeah. you generally say that in civil war. And like you said, we could do an entire podcast on probably just the battle. Of <laughs> yeah. You know, but, uh, it's very interesting. And, uh, and of course, eventually, you know, these numbers, like you said, these large casualties, these are going to pale in comparison to what we're going to yeah. see later in the war. And It'll the headlines of course will get bigger and bigger and, you know, Things are going to change coming really soon. Yeah, it only gets worse. Like I said, it's it's just hard to see how anybody can be a winner in that. You know? Exactly. Uh, Dylan, you got anything else to add there? I think that pretty much sums it up. All right. So we've experienced our first uh, major battles of the war in both the East and the West, as well as kind of dissected the uh, wartime philosophy of General Grant. So in the coming episodes, we're going to dive deeper into a few of the mid-war battles and discuss how the federal government would deal with some Southern refugees. Okay. So stay tuned. Cause you're not going to want to miss this. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and I appreciate you listening at home or in the car or wherever you may be. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and spread the word about your favorite history podcast. Uh, remember, you can find us on Instagram at just another history podcast with underscores between each word, uh, where we'll post polls, questions, updates, and information on future episodes. Make sure you join us next week at the same time and the same place. In next episode, we will discuss topics such as enslaved refugees, seven days battles, and the Emancipation Proclamation. That's all for now, and we hope to see you on the next episode of Just Another History Podcast. And until next time, remember, dive deeper, learn more, and share your love of history. Bye-bye for now.